0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, David, and today we'll be talking with Chris Catrone, author of The Death of the Millennial Left, Interventions 2006 through 2022, published by Sublation Media. Chris Catrone teaches critical theory at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and the Institute for Clinical Social Work. Chris is also the original lead organizer of the Platypus Affiliated Society. I hope you enjoyed the interview for today. So we usually like to start our interview just by asking our guests, just their general background and uh, how they came to write uh, their, their work. So Chris, how did you, what's your background and how did you come to write The Death of the Millennial Left? Well, um, so these are
0: writings that I did over the course of about 16 years. And it was in the context of organizing uh, a group of students of mine from the University of Chicago and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago into what became the Platypus Affiliated Society organization. Um, These were articles that I wrote for the publication of that organization, the Platypus Review, um, as commentary on mainstream political events as they were happening. And in the context of the millennial left, uh, kind of emerging and growing and developing through several different phases of recent history. So the starting in the era of the war on terror, and then into the period of the Great Recession after the financial crash, Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, and also um, controversies that emerged uh, both during the Obama administration um, like Black Lives Matter, and also uh, in, the, in the Trump era um, and around the election in 2016 and the primary challenge by Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party. So it's basically thematically organized according to those different um, topics as uh, kind of different angles on recent history. Um, and then I compiled them in, in a collection because I thought this was a good kind of retrospective moment to reflect upon recent history.
1: And you probably get this question all the time, but the name of the organi- organization that you founded, Platypus, where did the name come from?
0: Okay, so that name comes from the history of Marxism. Uh, it comes from an anecdote uh, told by Frederick Engels, who was Marx's um, lifelong friend and collaborator. Um, about his disbelief at the existence of the platypus. So um, he thought that it was a fraud uh, perpetrated by uh, British uh, taxidermists who had sort of stitched together um, a a creature out of different parts. And then they had a living platypus at the zoo that he saw, and he was sort of ashamed of himself for for being skeptical and disbelieving. So we use that... um, Kind of anecdote and the image of the platypus and the example of the platypus in terms of natural evolution, natural history, um, to talk about how the, the left in the 21st century, given its complex and storied history and kind of tragic history... Um, that the historical values of the left might have become obscure and in many respects unrecognizable by the time of the millennial left in the 21st century. So we thought it was an apt metaphor for capturing um, the moment and uh, and also as uh, really posing the question of the left. So just as the platypus um, kind of puzzled the uh Concepts of evolution and natural history in the nineteenth century. Uh, we wanted to raise the question of the left um, as an open-ended problem yet to be figured out in the twenty-first century.
1: Right. So uh, for this interview, I we I decided to focus more on the prologue and the epilogue, uh, which which are the two essays I found the most fascinating. Um, so in in the in the prologue. It's it, entitled Pets to Marxism. Uh, you start out by citing your three principal teachers, uh, which is the Spartacus League, Adolf Reed, and Moishe Uh do you, see a, do you see a through line through these three principal teachers, or, or are they for you three, I guess, discrete, hermetically sealed-like influences?
0: Oh, no. So I, I see them, the through line, the connection among them is Marxism meaning um, they what they have in common is um, thinking that is inspired by uh, the history of Marxism and is a response to the history of Marxism and a kind of critical view on the history of Marxism. So these are, you know, I feel like I was taught by people who um, did not simply kind of embrace Marxism affirmatively, but critically. Um, and th- so those are my living teachers, um, and I also had a posthumous teacher, and that's uh, Theodore Adorno, who was the topic of my academic study, but also uh, more broadly and deeply inspirational for me.
1: Could you uh, please elaborate uh, the difference between taking Marxism affirmatively as to taking it on critically?
0: Right. So uh, obviously, Marxism has a very complicated history, and in many respects. Um, what makes the history of Marxism interesting is uh, its internal divisions, the debates within Marxism, the controversies within Marxism, including uh, the political conflicts within Marxism, um, many of which took of even violent form, um, you know, especially around uh, the revolutions that came at the end of World War I, but also subsequently in the twenty in the twentieth century um and so the that those controversies might have you know a substance and might have a kind of a, a a meaningful illuminating character so again i think that i was convinced from a relatively early age um in my college years that actually thinking about the the greater society and political situation and history of especially the 20th century, that it, it might be the most meaningful way of accessing that history is through the kind of microcosm of the history of Marxism, that the conflicts within the history of Marxism might cast a meaningful light on broader controversies and conflicts um, in recent history. So that's what it means to take it up critically, to basically say uh, Marxism is defined in its history, its, its political history, by crisis and conflict, uh, that Marxism had to work through its own internal crises, and that some of the most kind of clarifying, meaningful, um, and deep uh, questions raised by the history of Marxism are posed exactly by those uh, controversies and conflicts. Not to shy away from those, or to treat them as settled, but again, treat them as open questions that still um, affect us, that still speak to us in the present.
1: Going on through the essay, uh, so you talk about your political awakening, in a sense. Um, I guess the question, but the curiosity I had is... Uh, you said you were turned on to Marxism in high school. Did you have any other political orientation before you were acquainted with Marxism? And what was, was there a political event or what happened uh, that made you want to turn to more radical politics?
0: Right. So it's, um it's interesting. I'm not sure whether I was already kind of um politically predisposed and then Marxism, answered that in me or whether I was actually politicized by Marxism, um, by my exposure to it. So it's a kind of a, it's, you know, it's, it's almost an accident. Um, I, I recall, um, dressing up for Halloween in 1983 as a, I think a world war one soldier, like it was, um, a friend of mine had like old stuff, really old stuff. It seemed like not even World War II. It seemed to even predate World War II. So I dressed up as a soldier and then someone asked me, oh, are you getting ready to go to Grenada? Um, the U.S. Um, under Ronald Reagan invaded the island nation of Grenada. And I was sort of shocked. I was like, no, I, you know, I wasn't even aware that the war was, was taking place. And uh, a close friend of mine, um, his older sister, you know, when we were talking about the war, it was taking place in the context of the cold war. So, um, the U S was invading Grenada because Grenada was seen as providing a, a kind of an airstrip for the Soviet union and, you know, for the East Bloc, And, you know, it was a, uh, it was a landing strip that was being built by Cuban engineers and there were Cuban troops and, So this is the rationale for the invasion. And so, again, it was like, well, what is this? You know, it's the Soviet Union and the Cold War and the conflict between the East and the West, capitalism and communism. So a friend of mine, like I said, his older sister said, well, if you're interested in that, you should read the Communist Manifesto. So I did. And um, I think it struck me in a peculiar way. Um, It struck me as, again, critical. Like, in other words, it, sim- it didn't simply explain the world to me, although I, I felt like it did. Um, but it also uh, gave me a sense that there are conflicts in the socialist and communist movement. So Marx and Engels have the kind of criticism of other socialists in the manifesto. You know, it gave this kind of broad sweep of history, and especially the, the character of modern history and capitalism. You know the Sorcerer's Apprentice. All that is solid melts into air. Um, you know the revolutionary role of bourgeois society in transforming the world. Um, you know it's it's quite a inspiring text, but it, I think it it inspired me in a in a particular way, which is not simply to kind of have a, a kind of a negative rejection of the world as it is, but to see the world as. Um, afflicted by crisis and having a kind of unfulfilled potential, uh, unfulfilled potential for freedom. I think that that really spoke to me from a very young age. Um, and, uh, you know, again, what were the, the conflicts, the wars of my own time, you know, what deeper meaning in history did they have that these political events have? It seemed to speak to that, however, distantly. And obviously, not not immediately or directly, um, but conceptually, it spoke to uh, a compelling way of, of, of regarding the world that I was living in.
1: After you become acquainted with Marxism and the left more broadly, what was it about Marxism that made you want to stick to that instead of other left? Tendencies such as anarchism or something like Christian socialism
0: Right, so there was something a little bit unsatisfying Uh, Subsequent to reading the Communist Manifesto I did encounter like leftist activists uh, And they were not Marxists Um, They were like secular humanists, you know, sort of atheists They were Quakers Um, There was also, you know, from the, the same Family of of the my close friend um, were Catholic and they were involved in uh, kind of liberation theology, Catholic worker kind of social justice activism, and those seemed uh, less interesting to me and more simply kind of negative, like denouncing the kind of corruption and iniquities of the world. Um, rather than, again, this kind of broader and deeper vision of uh, society and history. So Marxism, you know, I was kind of sold on Marx. And uh, I thought that the left that I encountered in terms of activism uh, was much less inspiring. And for instance, it was very much defined by opposition to Ronald Reagan. These were the Reagan years. And there was a, you know, very close memory of the 1960s New Left and this kind of fight the right kind of um, attitude and orientation that I found uh, not only less compelling, but kind of off-putting. I I found it to be problematic. Uh, You know, I didn't have the language for it back then, but of course now looking back, I would say, oh, well, they had an undialectical view of capitalism and and political realities by contrast with Marx. All right, so something about Marx, there was again a kind of peculiarity to Marx that I didn't quite understand, the uh, the contours of it, um, but it still spoke to me. It still it still felt compelling, um, and it, you know kind of captured my imagination, and when I would you know, raise questions like that, uh, about, you know, well, okay, so you think things are bad, but what do you think can be changed? What do you think should be changed? Again, I was kind of convinced of this idea of like, well, we should be struggling for socialism or communism. Um, the activists I had encountered, uh, really, you know, were anti-Marxist. So they were not only non-Marxist, but they were kind of anti-Marxist. So, Again, from a relatively young age, I was met by activists with this, oh, Chris, what's what's up with you? Why do you want to be this Marxist? What is this hyper Marxism about?
1: Do you think it was do you think the reason they were anti Marxists is because of the um because of the Cold War, or do you think they just thought Marxism was passe an old hat?
0: It's probably a mixture of both. So there definitely was this idea of, you know, we're leftists, we're interested in social justice, we might even be socialists, but we don't want to be Marxist because that was more like the East Bloc, the Soviet Union, communism. Or we could be Marxist, but in a kind of a, a non-literal way, not in a kind of politically programmatic way, not in a kind of dogmatic way. Um, whereas I thought, well, no, you know, actually, you know, there's something very consistent about Marx's v- vision and, you know, we should try to be true to that. So I think that, um, there was a kind of, uh, aversion to the East in the Cold War divide, but really there was an aversion to kind of Marxist dogmatism. I, I think that that's really what they, what they saw about Marxism that they didn't like. And they certainly did not think that like a Marxist politics was directly relevant or beneficial. Right. Again, it was a kind of a fight the right perspective. It was much more of a progressive liberal perspective that they had. Excuse me. So that's, you know, I think it was complicated. It's the 1980s. Um, It's a kind of a post-Marxist moment. So there is this idea that it's kind of old-fashioned and passe, but also maybe um, dangerous and and bad. Um, And, you know, they saw it as restrictive, both um, kind of intellectually, ideologically, and politically as limiting, you know, whereas I thought that it was more uh, kind of deep and radical.
1: And once you attend Hampshire College, uh, I guess my question is, what was in intellectual vogue uh, when you attend, when you attended college? Like, what were the big thinkers that people championed?
0: Right, this is a really good question. So, um, when I went to Hampshire, uh, I knew that it was a kind of a lefty school. Um, that was why I was interested in going there. Um, I was gay. I had come out in high school. I had a boyfriend and we went to college together. Uh, he actually discovered Hampshire College as a, as a potential uh, place for us to attend school. We, you know, we oriented towards um, Marxist professors at Hampshire. But this is the late 80s. Uh, you know, We went to college in 1988. That's the year I graduated high school. And what was in vogue, what was fashionable, was postmodernism. So I, I think I talk about this, um, in this, in that piece, the paths to Marxism in the prologue to my book that, um, you know, the idea was, well, you know, the professors said, we might've been Marxists, but now people are more into Foucault and that might be more appropriate. And of course, Foucault was a kind of a gay thinker. Um, so we got involved in organizing the, um, the gay student youth, like organization at the college. And one of the older students who was like a leader of that group, um, was very much into Foucault and was, uh, basically kind of, uh, sarcastic regarding, um, and somewhat dismissive about, uh, our interest in Marxism. Uh, and we had encountered some of that, I should say, I, I didn't really know about postmodernism. I don't think that I had heard about Foucault, but there was a kind of like, again, um, a kind of amused, ironical dismissal of Marxism. We had encountered in, in New York City at the gay Community center, the, the New York City gay youth group, um, you know, which was also kind of politically leftist um, and kind of activist. Uh, they, they also, you know, when, when we raised anything about Marxism, they just treated this as a kind of an odd curiosity. So definitely postmodernism was the thing. Um, I would say that it was still coming into vogue. It was kind of cutting edge at that time. It hadn't really been fully institutionalized academically. It was in the process of, of doing so. Um, And, you know, I saw it in my professors directly, people who had been Marxists coming out of the 60s, new left, embracing postmodernism in the 80s. So I kind of witnessed that firsthand. I was on the ground. I was at ground zero for that, especially at a place like Hampshire.
1: You talk about your professors originally being Marxists and then turning to this other line of thought. What do you think it was that made them turn to that? Was it just a pessimism about... The political, uh, the 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 uh, time of politics. Um, I think it was
0: a bunch of things. I think that it was pessimism. I think it was a sense that Marxism had failed, and I also think it was out of um, adherence to the new social movements. So postmodernism seemed to be truer to movements around, um, you know, race, gender, sexuality. Um, again, a kind of a post-Marxist. And, you know, at the time, there was already this language of identity politics and political correctness. You know, this is all from the culture wars of the Reagan era of the 1980s. Um, A lot of concepts that we've, that we have, a lot of language that we have now originate then in the 1980s. Um, And so there was this sense of you know, we have to uh, embrace things that old style Marxism seemed inadequate to. And those were the new social movements around social group identity and other forms of like oppression rather than just class. So I think that that was really the appeal. So I think that there was a kind of a blending of new social movements and postmodernist thinking.
1: And it's at Hampshire in which you first get introduced to one of the three principal teachers that you name, which is a Spartacus League. Uh, what originally drew you to the Spartacus League? And were there any other leftist organizations that were at Hampshire and you considered? Um, well, they weren't really at Hampshire and there
0: weren't really leftist groups uh, in the five college community in in Amherst and Northampton. Um, So probably the leftist organization that was present was the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, um, in the form of uh, professors and student activists. There was also, interestingly enough, a student organization at the UMass Amherst, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, that was the Communist Party USA. CPUSA. But other than that, um, you know, I think that uh, my friends and I had encountered leftist organizations at protest demonstrations um, in New York and uh, also, you know, elsewhere when we were in college. Um, but uh, we, we didn't really have all that much direct contact. Uh, I think that I talk about going to the anarchist bookstore in New York City and just so happened to meet Murray Bookchin without realizing that that's who it was, Um, when I was still in high school, I don't think it ever occurred to us to join a leftist organization, a Marxist organization, that just didn't present itself to us as a possibility. It wasn't on our radar. And we encountered the Spartacist League really accidentally um, through a friend, So she had encountered them. They had set up a meeting, a follow-up meeting to see her, and we came along. We joined her for that meeting because she wanted to, you know, get our opinion because she knew that we were interested in Marxism of the Spartacist League. Uh, Otherwise, we might not have met them, right? So, you know, we had picked up some, like, you know, Marxist and socialist and leftist newspapers at protest demos, but they seemed uh, kind of a little bit overwrought, a little bit, you know, just like curiosities. They didn't, they didn't actually grab our attention, but meeting with the Spartacist league, like I said, it's almost an accident. Um, And it was a contentious meeting. We, we raised questions. We argued with them. We debated with them. you know, we pressed them on things they were interesting. They were more interesting than we expected. And so that began a process of uh, our familiarizing ourselves with them and then starting a Spartacus Youth Club at Hampshire. Um, Otherwise, they weren't there. They were in Boston and New York. So the, um, the members that we met with were from Boston. They weren't local. Um, to the community at all. And actually that created some problems. They didn't quite trust us organizing a youth club so far away from them without their direct supervision. Uh, So it it ended up creating some problems down the road. Um, But in any case, uh, we found them compelling, you know, probably as a function of meeting them in person in a way that we had not found the leftists that we had met at protest demonstrations who we didn't really talk to very much. We just read their papers. We bought and read their papers. We didn't find them as interesting or compelling as we found the Spartacist League. Like I said, it's kind of an accident, though. So it's not like we shopped around for different leftist organizations. We didn't. Um, But we encountered them, we found them compelling, and uh, that began a kind of um, tutelage under the Spartacists. Um, and one of the things that I think uh, my friends and I found interesting and compelling about the Spartacist League was that they addressed other leftist organizations very polemically, you know, very critically, very negatively. But reading their newspaper, Workers Vanguard, um, was like a survey of the left. It, you know, they they addressed different tendencies um, on the left, from different forms of of Marxist ideology, you know, and not just in the United States, but around the world. And again, not only just in the present, but historically. And that was compelling.
1: So one organization that you mentioned during your answer was, was the DSA, and that that name has come up a lot, especially since 2016 in the Bernie campaign. Uh, Would you categorize the DSA at that time as uh, anti-Marxist? Like, were they ensconced in this post-structuralist thought? Or were they simply uh, non-Marxist, as in they were just promoting social democracy?
0: Right. So my experience of it was through the Spartacist League, through attending a speech given by Michael Harrington, And also, you know, like I said, meeting uh, DSA members, also meeting Communist Party USA members, but really more, I think, the DSA. And I just found them a little bit boring, a little bit uninteresting. Um, And Michael Harrington, I found a little bit infuriating. Him and, and Noam Chomsky both kind of infuriated me. And it was in the context of the Spartacists kind of heckling them or or polemicizing against them from the audience. So maybe that didn't bring out their best. But, yeah, the DSA, I think, felt to me as not very vital. I knew that they had something to do with Marxism. And, you know, I knew that it wasn't a simple matter of you know, they're being somehow non-Marxist socialists. I knew that it wasn't as straightforward as that. Um, But again, it could be also that uh, they were part of the same kind of general tendency I had encountered since high school of anti-Reaganism, kind of fight the right, pro-democratic party. That might have bothered me too about them. Um, but again, I, I found them more boring and uninteresting, an, an, an And then I found Michael Harrington himself to be somewhat infuriating, you know? So he said, um, yes, I killed Rosa Luxemburg, right? In other words, as a dismissive, as a kind of, um, sarcastic dismissal of the Spartacist league. And I just thought, yeah, that's, that, that just, that's bad. Um, <clears throat> um like I said, I wrote in the book, uh, I came to read his writings later and came to appreciate him more. But again, I think that it really had to do with the DSA, um, you know, not striking me as particularly interesting. And part of that had to do with their kind of fight the right democratic party, anti Ronald Reagan kind of general orientation. I thought, well, okay, so you're socialists, but you're prioritizing fighting Ronald Reagan, and I thought, well, that that didn't seem to quite make sense to me.
1: Another scene you talk about is when you visited South Africa and you got to meet Mandela. Uh, what did you think of M- Mandela's politics and the way he sort of navigated around the politics of South Africa at that time?
0: Right. So <clears throat> one thing that I had done... Um, In high school already, and then also in college, I was involved in, you know, the issues on the left of the time, which were anti-apartheid, South African solidarity, anti-apartheid activism, and also Central American solidarity. Um, So anti-U.S. interventionism in Central America. So solidarity with the Sandinistas, solidarity with the FMLN in El Salvador, Um, those kinds of issues. So regarding South Africa, um, so I had, um, you know, really studied the history uh, also when I was in college. So I was, um, I was kind of a dual major in political science and in film and video. Um, But, you know, for a long time, I, my focus was on the social sciences and on political science, and, and I did research projects on history of Marxism, history of revolution, history of movements. And I studied the history of South Africa and the movement there, and also the African civil wars that took place in the frontline states around South Africa and the involvement of um, leftist organizations in, in those civil wars in the 1970s and 80s. Um, I, I thought of, you know, Nelson Mandela as uh, a kind of a sentimental figure. I didn't think of him as really a very strong ideological figure. So I looked more at the ideology and the politics of the ANC and also of the South African Communist Party in particular, since they're the kind of Marxists in a way that the ANC doesn't claim to be. And uh, by the time I visited South Africa, this was after college, I had already stepped back from um, kind of leftist activism. I had uh, quit the Spartacus Youth Club. Um, And it was in the context of uh, my career as a video artist. It was to attend a film festival, the first gay and lesbian film festival in South Africa. Um, And that's how I got my travel paid for. And, uh, you know, it was in the first year post-apartheid. Um, So it was the new post-apartheid South Africa um, and uh, is sponsored by the government, by the ANC. And so that was the context in which I met, you know, these activists, including very briefly, just, you know, at a kind of a a, a kind of a formal kind of reception dinner, um, uh, Nelson Mandela. So, you know, I... Already understood the limitations of both the historical situation, the politics, the ideology, the general orientation of both the South African Communist Party and the African National Congress. I understood already through the Spartacist League, you know, they considered the the ANC and the South African Communist Party to be like sellouts you know, that they were like betraying the anti-apartheid struggle and they were establishing neo-apartheid, um, you know, very strident polemical rhetoric, but I, I, did have a sense of the substance of it. And so as I wrote in my book, um, I was sympathetic to, especially the, um, sobriety of Mandela and the other activists, the other kind of celebrity kind of figures from the movement who we met, you know, uh, me and my group of uh, uh, traveling British and American filmmakers, and they were, you know, super enthusiastic, um, you know, not at all critical, kind of naive and, and largely ignorant um, of the history. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, basically treating it as, you know, this is a a major revolution, overcoming apartheid. And the actual South African figures like Mandela and others who we met were, you know, much more circumspect. They were like, this isn't a revolution. Um, You know, that's not the best way of thinking about it. And of course, at the time, the immediate background for our visit War, was the controversy between the ANC and Nkatha, the, the the Zulu um, kind of nationalists, uh, the kind of right-wing um, uh, black political party and movement. Um, and they were engaged in, there was violent conflict between uh, Nkatha and uh, the ANC. Um, and our, my fellow, you know, travelers on that, on that visit to South Africa really had no idea about any of that. They didn't understand any of it. Um, and so, you know, it, it was, it became a kind of a political pilgrimage for me, that visit to South Africa. Um, you know, it didn't happen just that way. It happened again, more accidentally, um, you know, through a a kind of a non-political pursuit of mine as an artist. Uh, but, Nonetheless, it had that significance. Even though I had stepped back from my from my activism, it ha, it, it, it was a kind of a culmination of years of study and years of uh, political activism around the issue.
1: And then after that, you talk about me- meeting Adolf Fried and him introducing you to Adorno in a more uh, deep way than maybe you were originally acquainted with Adorno. I guess my question is, wh- what is it about Adorno that, People might have a misconception of, some people think of him as uh, not even a Marxist because he prioritizes maybe Hegel over, over Marx or thinks of him as a cultural elitist. Uh, what is it about Adorno that you have misconceptions about?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So I had read the culture industry chapter of Horkheimer and Adorno's Dialectic of Enlightenment in college. As part of a standard kind of film media studies, cinema studies kind of uh, syllabus. Uh, You know, Walter Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Somehow these things had not really left much of an impact on me. Um, So I'm not sure exactly why that was. um, But uh they they kind of didn't speak to me so i think i write about the fact that other other um cultural critics like Stuart hall and raymond williams had been more impactful had affected me more had seemed more political but also more clearly substantial as to the issues of like aesthetic form and um you know kind of social and historical and political analysis of of art and culture um so I came around to it, so I, I want to say that um, meeting Adolph Reed was another kind of happy accident, um, because I, I was, it just so happened, uh, in the same entering class at Hampshire College with Adolph's son, Teray, and I just happened to read an op-ed uh, article that Adolph wrote um, when I was visiting home from college uh, on Long Island. Um, kind of critique by Adolf Reed of, um, student activism and black student activism in particular, and how it was continuing to his mind, the mistakes of the 1960s new left. And, uh, I was kind of fascinated. I had no idea he was any kind of a Marxist. Uh, I wrote to him. He was at Yale university at the time. And, you know, we kind of struck up a correspondence, met a few times, and then I really got to know Adolf very well after college here in Chicago, where it just so happened he moved to Chicago a year or two before I moved here after after uh, graduating from Hampshire College. So um, that was my real opportunity to get to know him, and it was in that context, it was here in Chicago that, from multiple sources actually, but Adolf Adolf Reed certainly one of them, but another, another source was Reginald Shepard, a friend of mine, um, a poet, a black gay poet, a very close friend of mine. Um, they both recommended Adorno to me in the context of my attending the school of the art Institute of Chicago to get an MFA in, in video art, a master of fine arts in video art soon after I moved here to Chicago. So, uh, Reginald, Uh, got me to read Aesthetic Theory. And Adolf uh, was really recommending to me um, the more social scientific and philosophical uh, Adorno. So he recommended the essay collection Prisms, which has a variety of different essays in it. It's a a wonderful book, but also Negative Dialectics. Um, And it was in the context, again, of being a graduate student and being an artist, being a practicing artist in the world, in the public sphere. And uh, it was a kind of rediscovery of Adorno. And I, and I read the Dialectic of Enlightenment. I reread the Culture Industry chapter. It spoke to me in a new and different way than had been the case previously. See, I think that I read Adorno and Benjamin too early, like really before I understood Marxism uh, in college. So I had to really have a deeper understanding of Marxism, which I got through the Spartacist League, but also through um, mentorship with Adolf Reed uh, to really, you know, suss out the Marxism of Adorno. I don't think it was immediately apparent to me. I knew that it had something to do with Marxism, but uh, it, 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 it was obscure. And I think that that's true of a lot of readers. Um, I think that's true generally of the dominant reception of his work. Uh, and it's, i never, it's not that I ever thought Adorno was a cultural elitist or anything like that. Um, I rather, I had a different experience of it. Now I should also say that friends of mine, and I'm not sure that I wrote about this in the book, actually, uh, who were musicians, who were very deeply involved in music, they had read, and I had read along with them, um, uh, Adorno's uh, Philosophy of Modern Music. So that's his kind of semi-notorious book about um, Schoenberg and Stravinsky. Uh, And again, I didn't find it terribly illuminating. I didn't quite get the point of it. It didn't capture me. So that's something that took place in in college. Um, I came back to it and I kind of understood more the point of it, but I, I, I do think that I needed to have an education in Marxism to really make sense of Adorno, right? It wasn't, I wasn't ready for Adorno when I first encountered his work in college.
1: <clears throat> so your recommendation to people that I guess, want to engage with Adorno and understand him, is just become more acquainted with Marxism in general?
0: Right. Well, of course, I did a deep dive into Adorno. um, And that happened, uh, you know, kind of starting with my uh, graduate study as a master of fine arts student as an artist, but really came later. So I gave myself a project. I decided to get a PhD. Um, I knew that the PhD was going to be about Adorno. I knew that I'd be writing a dissertation on Adorno. I thought it would be more media studies, cultural studies, cultural criticism oriented. I thought it would be more art and literature oriented. But then of course, the more of the secondary literature, the scholarship on Adorno that I read, the more I realized that there was a real deficit in understanding Adorno's Marxism his view on society and politics, that that seemed to be um, a, a serious missing piece in people's understanding of Adorno. And again, I was encouraged in this by Adolf. Um, and you know, so I, I did a deeper investigation. And as it turned out, uh, around the time that I started my graduate studies towards the PhD, there were some new publications of Adorno's writings, uh, specifically the essays in Critical Models. But then there started to be some other uh, new publications of, of Adorno's writings that had more of a political bent to them. There were lectures published on the introduction of sociology, for example, uh, around that time. And again, it, it, it seemed to confirm like his more political writings seem to confirm uh, what I had sort of read between the lines of the cultural criticism, which is the Marxism informing his work. So uh, again, now I feel like it's a very different situation in terms of what's available. Uh, And and really, uh, uh, Adorno gave me another angle into the history and meaning of Marxism that I had to be prepared for. I had to have some substantial sense of Marxism and its history and the controversies in that history, the conflicts in that history, um, in order to make sense of Adorno, but then Adorno kind of deepened, you know, so I, I kind of detected the implicit Marxism in Adorno, but then Adorno's writings themselves helped bring out the implicit, not always fully spelled out aspects of Marxism itself.
1: I guess moving on to the epilogue now, the American Revolution and the left. <clears throat> what what do you uh, what do you find in the American Revolution that's important for the for the left to uh, keep alive, I guess, or to remember?
0: right so um i wrote that in the context of a platypus panel um a panel discussion a public forum at columbia university right before the uh covid pandemic hit uh in february of 2020 so in the election year of 2020 at the end of uh donald trump's first term as president And in the context of the 1619 Project, having uh, been published in 2019, the year before, and so controversy around the American Revolution, the meaning of the American Revolution, um, was, you know, very front and center in the public sphere. Um, you know, Trump had notoriously around the Charlottesville um, protests and the uh, street fighting between the, the far left and the far right around the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue, um, he, Trump had said famously, well, it's Robert E. Lee today, but tomorrow it's going to be George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think people at the time thought that this was uh, overwrought, that it was um, kind of an exaggeration and kind of demagogical on, on Trump's part to say that. But then, of course, later in 2020, with the George Floyd protests and riots that took place in the summer of 2020, it was, in fact, borne out um, that there was going to be this kind of a radical kind of n- rejection of the American Revolution. So that hadn't happened yet. The George Floyd uh, protests had not taken place yet but it was in the air with the 1619 project. And generally it was in the air around the, um, anti-Trump, uh, attitudes on the left and, and protests, uh, from early on, from before he was elected, but certainly after he was elected. So this had motivated me. And again, this was, you know, in 2020 rather late in the game, um, to kind of put a fine point on something that, uh, Me that uh, I had with other members of Platypus already investigated as part of our project, which is the relationship between bourgeois society and the struggle for socialism, the bourgeois revolution, as Marxists call it, and the struggle for socialism, Um, the continuity that old style Marxists had drawn between not only the French Revolution but also the American revolution and the struggle for socialism. And again, my old comrades in the Spartacist league had formulated it with respect to the U S civil war and failed reconstruction. And I had read, you know, histories of reconstruction like Eric Foner. Um, and so there was this idea of like the unfulfilled struggle the unfinished revolution in the United States. Again, by the Spartacists, really posed as a function of the Civil War and the failure of Reconstruction after the Civil War. But really, more broadly, um, I had come to investigate the history of American socialism. So Eugene Debs, as a Socialist Party of America leader, had really claimed Jefferson and Lincoln for the history of socialism rather than for the history of capitalism. And, you know, I had sort of developed a viewpoint on things that I hadn't really considered very deeply previous to the Trump era um, so much. I think that I thought about it much more broadly in terms of bourgeois society, capitalism and socialism um, and Marxism, uh, the continuity between Marxism and the Enlightenment or bourgeois thought historically, Um, but I wanted to sort of make a, you know, a provocative and kind of, uh, you know, kind of pointed intervention at the end of the trajectory of the millennial left, that the the millennial moment on the left had seemed to cash out in this kind of anti-Americanism that was not really there in the beginning, in 2006, when, when Platypus started out, and when I really re-engaged the left after taking a long break from the early 90s up until the early zeros. Um, and so, you know, I felt like, actually, this is a good prism through which to illustrate problems on the left and again it's the it's the moment it's 2019 1619 project 2020 the prospect of trump's re-election the general um negativity towards america and towards like donald trump representing the worst of america and the struggle over history and struggle over the legacy of history um i do feel very strongly and passionately about it um and again it's it's a way of looking at history that used to be common sense on the Marxist left, until fairly recently. Um, you know, maybe starting in the 1960s there was a change, but not even then. It's much. It's even more recent than that, that there was a kind of turn against uh, the um, you know taking up the unfilled of ta- unfulfilled tasks of the American Revolution as part of the struggle for socialism. Um, and I thought that it would be appropriate to end the book on that note, have that be the epilogue. There's a further appendix that's like a kind of a explanation of platypus um, after that in the book. Um, but really the, the culmination of the book is uh, Republicans and Riots, uh, which covers some similar themes. And then immediately following that is... Uh, Then that's about the George Floyd protests, and immediately after that is the American Revolution and the Left as an epilogue. And I thought it was appropriate to end on that note to say look, uh, this history is not finished. And this negativity and nihilism towards America and its history and the historical task of the present, as I see it, um, this is not finished, this is not settled by any means and even though it's only obscurely represented in the crisis of capitalist politics exemplified by trump it's there right it's there in the bernie sanders moment it's there in the trump moment it's there in the millennial left moment right but but again there seems to be a turning away uh and a kind of dismissal of this history rather than really engaging it.
1: When you describe the millennials, the millennials, the millennial left's a turn to anti-Americanism, do you take it to be uh, they're just being against the articulation of bourgeois ideals, or do you take it to be a rejection of bourgeois ideals full sail?
0: Well, it's tricky, right? Because I think that there's actually a lot of confusion about it and also a lot of um, a kind of a, a self-contradictory character to it. Um, you know, I mean, in the dominant discourse, you know, so I mentioned the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So I think that, you know, Jacobin Magazine, the DSA uh, millennial kind of journal, uh, you know, obviously, is making a claim on the legacy of the French Revolution. So there's this kind of Cold War era idea that the French Revolution represents equality and the American Revolution represents liberty, that the French Revolution represents socialism in some way, and the American Revolution represents capitalism. Um, you know, this division of freedom from equality and fraternity, right? So, liberté, égalité, fraternité, the values of the French Revolution, but also life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness equally for all in the American Revolution, again, Thomas Jefferson. And, of you know, knowing this history as I do, I know that uh, the American and French Revolution, that they're very much, tied together. They're not separate events. They have some of the same protagonists like Jefferson himself and Lafayette, you know, Benjamin Franklin. Um, you know, it's all part of one moment at the end of the 1700s, in fact. And so the idea that the French Revolution is more radical and the American Revolution is more conservative, I think is profoundly mistaken, but is also indicative of something, uh, of a kind of uh, Basic confusion on the left, are liberty and equality opposed values? Is freedom as a value opposed to equality? You know, again, this seems to me, especially, you know, I feel like my generational background, the end of the Cold War, um, that kind of overhanging a lot of considerations of history The idea that, like, freedom is a right-wing concept. It's something that I address in the Paths to Marxism. And I just, I think that this is really wrong and very misleading. And again, the question of the American Revolution, the legacy of the American Revolution really raises this. Like, is it really the case that this bourgeois revolutionary history is divided in this way? That it's capitalism on the one hand or socialism on the other hand Again, for me my understanding of marxism is that there's an intrinsic relationship between capitalism and socialism these are not opposed values it's not like capitalism is this kind of selfish individualism you know uh, liberty at the expense of the community on the part of individuals whereas socialism is egalitarian collective altruism right? I, I, This is not the way Marx understood it. It's not the way historical Marxism understood it. It's not what uh, socialists in the United States, like Eugene Debs, it's not the way they understood it back in the day. And yet, right, these kind of antinomical, opposed, contradictory uh, ways of thinking about these values does seem to inform, misinform the left today. And I don't think the millennials really uh, worked, worked through it very well. Um, I don't think that they, I think they came up against it and I think they remain confused about it. So, you know, that's where I feel like uh, there's a deep ambivalence about um, bourgeois rights, bourgeois values in terms of history, right? Not in terms of like, you know, the the rights and values of rich people, not the bourgeoisie, like uh, the bougie kind of wealthy capitalists, but rather bourgeois society. You know, what's new and different about the kind of society we're living in, in capitalism, and what is its unfulfilled and revolutionary potential? And how socialism used to be understood as fulfilling that rather than just being... um, skeptical, let alone rejecting of it, right? So the, I, I think I've always understood, going all the way back to my first reading of the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, I always understood that the Marxist vision of socialism and communism was not anti-bourgeois, was not like anti-bourgeois society, and that it wasn't even anti-capitalist, that that wasn't the point. The point was not like anti-capitalism. I guess it's because... Already in the manifesto, I read Marx and Engels' criticism of what they call reactionary socialism—you know, anti-capitalist socialism—and the um, limitations and confusion and um, mistake of that, and the difference of that from their own perspective. All right, that—that's like an abiding uh, lesson from from Marx that I've I've had from a very early age.
1: I think that's a great way to end the interview. And we usually like to ask our guests, uh, is there anything currently that they're working on? Yes. So there's actually a second volume
0: to this book. There's a sequel. And that's a book that will also come out from Sublation Press uh, early next year uh, called Marxism and Politics, Essays on Critical Theory and the Party. And it's actually going to be longer than this book. It's going to be a great deal longer. It might be as much as twice as long as this book. And that's going to collect my theoretical writings that I've written over the same time period, from 2006 up through this year, through 2023. Um, and again, mostly things that I've written for Platypus, for my activity in, in that organization. But... Uh, Also, things that I've written uh, elsewhere, published elsewhere. Um, And uh, it's really going to give my kind of theoretical viewpoint, my understanding of Marxism at the level of theory. Um, You know, essays on Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg and Adorno and Benjamin. Uh, So, you know, again, as a companion volume, but also as a way of kind of bookending how I've been motivated to clarify certain things for myself in the context of the millennial left, right? So I was motivated by my students through this, you know, 21st century kind of rediscovery of socialism and Marxism. I was motivated to clarify some things to myself about my understanding of Marxism. And so I, I did write Um, on various topics uh in that vein and so it it also seems like a good moment to collect those writings and to really say okay what what is this recent history uh been the occasion for clarifying to myself about my understanding of marxism so that's the next uh the next book that's coming out um like i said before too long uh just in uh, early next year um and uh, that's immediately what I'm working on. Um, I'm also doing some other writing uh, for, you know, essays that, that will come out. Um, I've, I've written recently a review of uh, the new biography of Milton Friedman by Jennifer Burns that's uh, going to come out in Compact Magazine. So those are my, those are my uh, immediate plans for the rest of this year and early next year.
1: Chris Cattrone, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you.